Hi, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of In Biolog. I'm your host, Parker Condit, CEO and co-founder of Motobio. My guest today is Dr. Doug Lucas. Dr. Doug is a health optimization physician. Previously, he was a Stanford Fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon. Now retired from that field, he's a CEO and founder of Optimal Bone Health, where he and his team help patients optimize bone quality by reviewing lifestyle factors, genetics, extensive lab work, and functional testing. Dr. Doug left his role in the traditional healthcare model as an orthopedic surgeon so he could help educate his patients and followers on how to prevent the surgeries he was trained to perform. And we covered a lot in the show. The first half of the discussion is around bone health, which includes what exactly osteoporosis is, his model for using the four pillars of health, which are exercise, nutrition, sleep, and connection, how men and women differ when it comes to bone health and preventative measures, and how this is currently measured and assessed here in the U.S. The second half of the conversation is more around his practice in Asheville, North Carolina, and we dive into our thoughts on where the healthcare industry is going in the future. Towards the end of the show, we briefly discuss ways that patients can be their own best advocates when it comes to their health, which is becoming a very common theme amongst my recent guests. So there's a lot of gems in the shows, and we link to all the resources mentioned in the show notes as well. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Doug Lucas. Dr. Doug Lucas, uh, let's just start with some of the basics around osteoporosis. Um, I think it's going to be helpful for people to understand what it is, some basic stats around it, basically getting people invested in like, why why should people care about this? I think everyone's pretty bought in on heart disease, everyone's bought in on cancer, um, but I'd love for you just to explain what what you can around osteoporosis. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me and, and being able to talk about this topic because you just actually nailed it. So there's so much conversation around heart disease and around cancer and around dementia, and there absolutely should be. But in those top four killers of us as adults, as we age, is falls from osteoporosis. It's right in there with them, and yet almost no conversation, right? It's, it's like it's absent from the communication. Um, and I think it's, it's sad because it is absolutely preventable for the vast majority of people. Arguably, so is heart disease, but yet. Um, so yeah, the, the statistics are scary. And when I talk about, you know, who is likely to have a fracture, that is a big group of people. So we're talking 50% of women and 25% of men will have a, a, a fragility fracture, which is a, the fracture that happens with osteoporosis in their lifetime. So that's a huge number. And people could argue, oh, well, that's, you know, when we're 90 years old and, but no, it's actually, it really starts early on really in your sixties and even in your fifties for some. And some of those fractures, like hip fractures, have so much morbidity associated with them, meaning that people don't do well. You know, a third of people with hip fractures die. A third of people never regain independence. Only a third of people even get back to the living situation that they were in. And even then, um, they're not the same. So being able to prevent these things and having a, a plan around, you know, how to deal with this for the rest of your aging life is really important. Yeah. I think I was so curious to talk to you and excited to be have the opportunity to talk to you because I read something a few weeks ago. Um, I saw it on Instagram, but maybe you can confirm this, but it was an alarming number. It was that anyone who has a hip fracture who's over 65, there's a 15 to 30% chance they will die within the next 12 months. Right. Like It's absolutely true. That's alarming. And like you said, most people don't talk about this and maybe it's because I'm 34, but I feel like I'm I'm relatively well plugged into the health space. 
And it seems like the osteoporosis and like the the bone health and bone density uh, PR firms aren't aren't doing what cancer is doing out there. It just seems like it's it's just not getting that sort of attention. No, and and the and the truth is, there's you know, cancer is a really tough problem. Not to downplay cancer, right? But the truth is, bone health it's actually a pretty simple problem that there just isn't much funding behind. So okay. if you look at the you know the government agencies that have the ability to to do the you know the megaphone communication. They just don't have the resources. Oh. Um, and so it's just a really under-discussed issue that really has a pretty simple solution. Okay. Uh, we're going to get to solutions at some point, certainly. But I'd love to be able to discuss kind of the the implications and the differences between men and women. Because I had a, a women's health expert on a few weeks ago, so that was a very interesting conversation. Um, are, are there differences between men and women as far as like risk factors, when you need to start caring, things like that? Yeah, so if you look just statistically, this suffer women suffer from this earlier than men, and and there are some different numerous reasons why you could argue, but the biggest one is is that women go through menopause at a relatively predictable time, even though it's a range. Uh, men go through andropause, which is the loss of the male sex hormones, at a much slower pace, right? So like men will go through andropause for decades, um, you know, and depending on their starting point, they're not going to have issues with loss of sex hormones until much later in life. Whereas women, when they go through menopause, it's like, boom, you know, it's, it's over. Um, and so they suffer the loss of estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone. And all three sex hormones play a role in bone metabolism. So depending on their starting point, we see a lot of women who are perimenopausal and early postmenopausal who already have osteoporosis. So it's a bigger deal for them much earlier on. And, and that's the, the big difference between men and women. Also, men generally have a higher starting point when it comes to just bone mineral density. And we can talk about whether, you know, what that means and why it's important or not, but, but they have a better starting point as far as fracture risk goes. So they're also less likely to suffer a fracture earlier in life, but this does become an issue for them later in life. Okay. This is me going off cue already. Uh, so you said, uh, suffering a fracture earlier in life. If you suffer a fracture earlier in life, are you at a higher, higher likelihood for a repeat fracture? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the biggest, the biggest risk factor for a, a fragility fracture is a previous fragility fracture. Okay. Interesting. So this is kind of piggybacking off of what I learned about the Women's Health Initiative and sort of the resulting uh, effects of that, of hormone replacement therapy basically stopping in 2002 or right around 2002. Um, can, can hormone replacement therapy help with osteoporosis and help... Um, Help sort of, you were talking about like the very precipitous decline. Can this sort of ease that and help with uh, bone density for women? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll choose my words super carefully in case the FTC is listening. Um, so hormone therapy as a whole is not FDA approved for osteoporosis, although estrogen or estradiol therapy is alone, although you could argue why. Um, but estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, the whole package, if that's what you're using in a bioidentical perspective, is not FDA approved for osteoporosis. As I mentioned earlier, though, each of those hormones plays a different role in bone metabolism. So estrogen will slow down osteoclasts. Those are the cells that, that, that break down bone. It'll slow down osteoclast function. So maintaining estrogen after menopause uh, through hormone replacement will slow down bone loss, undeniably. It was used as the primary tool for osteoporosis for decades prior to the Women's Health Initiative. Um, progesterone also plays a role in osteoblast. That's the, the cells that uh, make bone. So osteoblast, both function and differentiation, meaning like from stem cells to become osteoblasts. And then testosterone, somewhat directly on bone, but more indirectly through muscle mass. 
we know that sarcopenia or loss of muscle mass as we age is strongly associated with bone health. You could almost argue like chicken or the egg. Um, but testosterone has such an impact on muscle mass that will obviously have an impact on bone health too. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate you kind of being able to dive into that. And it's funny how a lot of these conversations are now dovetailing largely towards the same things. Um, so I guess, I guess from there is, can you start discussing some of the, like the lifestyle factors that are associated with this and maybe also diving into your, you rattled off some ages earlier, um, fifties, sixties, obviously if you're there already, it's not too late, right? Like you can always do stuff to mitigate future risk. But when should, be, like in an optimal scenario, when should people start being proactive about bone health? Yeah, so I get this question a lot and people look at me funny when I answer, but honestly, the time to start knowing where your bone density is, is in your early you know, 20s and 30s, your early adulthood. And the reason for that is we reach peak bone mass at that age. So if you know that you don't have good bone mass, like for example, I was osteopenic in my 20s and it's because I had a crappy diet growing up. Um, and so I know that I have osteopenia. Now, I also know that my bone mass hasn't changed over the last 30 years, um, but I knew, I knew what my starting point was. And it's because I was a research subject in my wife's PhD thesis. Um, but if you know that you have a low starting point, then you know that you need to be much more careful about things that affect your bone over time. You know, should you take those steroids or not? Should you go on a PPI or not? You know, should you be on, you know, some kind of a supplement to help to, to metabolize bone? Should you take a birth control pill? No. Um, you know, like all those things. And so you can know where your starting point is earlier on, you're going to be better off. So realistically though, um, you know, most of the people listening to this, if they saw osteoporosis in the title, you know, they're going to be probably in their forties, fifties or, or beyond. Um, so when does that group get a DEXA scan? And my response would be, if you haven't had one now, because everybody is at risk, really, if you look at the risk factors for osteoporosis. Yeah. I, I asked that question, assuming the answer was like a lot earlier than most people would probably consider, but most of the people who are our customers, probably your customers, our listeners, uh, they have kids, so they can pass along that information to their kids and sort of, uh, you know, relay the fact that the earlier you start, the better. And it is interesting to know, like the frame that I've always used to think about sort of muscle mass and bone density, I guess, is, um, you, you kind of climb to a certain point and you were saying that's, uh, in your twenties, I suppose. And then I think in your thirties for muscle, um, it's, it's really hard to build a ton of new muscle beyond that. And then from there, it's basically a fight to hang on to what you have. That's how I've always thought yeah. of it. It's like build, 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 build. And then you're yeah. just ever, all your work after that, it's just fighting to hang on to what you, what you have. Um, that's yeah. the frame no, I've I always used that's, for it. That's a, that's a great way to look at it. And you're right. Muscle mass, it does, it, it comes after. And I think, you know, for my, for my guys, I'll tell them because I have a, a lot of patients in their forties and fifties, sort of in my, the other side of my practice for health optimization. And, you know, I'm telling those men, look, if you're in your forties and fifties, you get as muscular as you can. Okay. <laughs> right? Because once you kind of like peak in your fifties, if you're working really hard, it's, it's a downhill slide and you got to fight every day to, to slow it down. Um, so yeah, same, same thing, you know, learn, learn what your starting point is. It's just easier to see with muscle. Sure. And it, it's definitely worth reiterating the fact that it's definitely possible if you're in forties and fifties to put on muscle mass and it, sure. that should be a goal for, for most people in this country. I think this country is very under muscled is probably the best way to put it. Um, so yep. it's definitely possible. It's never too late to start. I feel like a lot of people can go sort of a lifetime without exercising. They're like, why bother? Why now? And it can make a massive difference starting Absolutely. in your forties or fifties. Yep. So 
you mentioned diet, uh, like childhood diet. Can you just talk about the influence of diet kind of growing up? And it sort of spins my head off into, I wonder if there's even like, um, like really early childhood considerations, like duration of breastfeeding, uh, delivery, like, uh, birth delivery method. I, I bet there's, is there any research around like those types of things that have considerations to long-term, uh, bone density? Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't seen it go back to delivery method. Um, you know, but, but it's, you know, you could argue, right? Like it's, if you have, if you underwent a C-section and that was your, your welcome into this world was a, you know, quote unquote, non-traumatic, although I don't know if you've seen a C-section, but still not the same as going through the birth canal. Um, yeah, it's going to put you in a different starting place, but no, I've not seen any research on that. Um, but definitely your eating and activities through childhood and adolescence will play a major role in your peak bone density development. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at even like gymnasts, and you could argue, you know, you mentioned about diet. So this is a group that obviously struggles with adequate nutrition in some spaces, but um, but the way that they are active and the impact that they impart on their bones, their bone density in general is really good. So then you take your, let's take your, you know, female gamer who has a poor diet. Like what's her bone mineral density like? It's terrible. Um, and so then there's genetic factors associated with that too, but absolutely, you know, when we, cause I have a, I have a four-year-old, right? So I watch her and I'm looking at her diet and I'm thinking, okay, how do I get more protein in her? And is she getting adequate minerals and nutrients? You know, cause it's, if, if, I don't know if you have kids, but man, it's really tough to feed kids good food. Um, I have a four, nine and 11 year old and they're all in different stages of challenging eating. So what are the considerations that you mentioned a few, like what are these boxes that you're trying to check from a nutritional standpoint, if you can just rattle off some of those? Yeah. Number one being adequate protein. And this is the, the first thing we do when somebody enters into the program is we have them track food and we figure out how much protein they're eating and across the board without fail, they're all protein deficient. Um, that's almost changed a little bit because people are coming in by listening to my YouTube channel. And so they've heard me say this, you know, I don't know how many times. So now they're coming in, they're like, no, 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 it's a gram per pound. I promise, I promise. I'm eating a gram per pound, you know, but they just started that. Um, so that's the, the number one thing, because you have to have adequate and adequate protein to build muscle, adequate protein to build bone, right? Bone is 50% protein by mass. So that's the number one thing. And then the second thing is going to be, honestly, in this group, it's, this is different from the rest of the population, but in the bone health group, it is really um, adequate nutrition just overall they tend to be a, a, a nutrient depleted group for whatever reason, again, chicken or the egg. Um, so just making sure that they're getting enough calories and that those calories are coming from good food sources. Um, so those are the kind of the two big things out of the gate. Okay. You said it, but can you just give us a, like, what is your protein threshold that people should yeah, be eating? So, uh, one gram, I said it really fast, one gram per pound of desired body weight. Um, and so for, again, for this bone health group, actually, generally, we're pushing that upwards of their actual body weight. Of course, you know, if you're talking about a weight loss group, it's going to be lower. But yep. so a gram per pound of desired body weight is sort of our starting point. Um, and then obviously, we have to take into consideration, you know, do they have kidney disease and what other issues? But uh, but that's the general starting point that we're going to aim for for people. Okay, very helpful. And then uh, do you, I'm assuming you do sort of uh, lifestyle assessments, do you check how much people are walking? How do you sort of judge their their levels of daily physical activity, if you will. Yeah. So we have, we have questionnaires on questionnaires onboarding into our program is, um, let's just call it work <laughs> because we have to, we have to get a lot of information, you know, and they're meeting with coaches. And so sometimes this takes multiple visits, but pretty quickly we can identify where people are, are falling short in the activity side. 
a lot of people will wear trackers. We don't mandate it. I love it when people will wear something like a, you know, like a Whoop or even an Apple Watch, something where we can get a sense of how active they are. But ultimately what we're looking for is how much resistance training are you doing? How heavy of things are you moving around? Um, you know, are you doing any kind of impact training? Are you just getting out and moving? You know, and those are sort of the the basic fundamentals. And then of course we dive into like the the rabbit holes of all the different modalities and things that people can do. Yep. All right. So I come from a personal training background. So let's dive into resistance training. Uh, do you have uh, like a minimum uh, days per week that you want people to be doing? Do you have a, a standard split that you start people on for people who have never exercised before? Yeah, that's, this is the tough thing, right? So, um, you know, obviously there's a, a massive range of ability level coming in and we struggled with this early on because I just didn't have a tool that I could apply to you know, I have high level athletes in one side and then I have people that literally just don't get off the couch on the other, you know, so how do you train that whole group through a telehealth platform? And I didn't, I didn't have the answer to that. Uh, but now we have created a couple of different things. So we have, um, some of our patients will work in a, um, with, uh, some videos made by Rebecca Rothstein, who founded a company called Buff Bones. And so these are very specific to, um, to, to bone health and to fall prevention and they're really great foundational videos and uh, they're Pilates based. And so uh, th that's an opportunity that we have for people. And that's easy because any anybody can pretty much do that. Um, and then we have another level up. And this is a level that we've recently created. And uh, Nick Truby, who is a, a PhD in exercise physiology and runs a, a training program, a virtual training program. Um, he now will meet with our patients and do an initial um, you know, consultation with them and kind of figure out what their starting point is. And now we have content and different starting tracks. So we'll say, look, you're, you know, this is your starting point. This is your track. And then we just program them from there. And then, of course, they have follow-up coaching. So they're just going to continue to kind of march down this program programming pathway. That's just launched recently, though. So too early to say, you know, we're, we're, how we're doing with that. But I would say in general, we're kind of hitting, you know, I would love to see people do three to four days of resistance training a week if their body can tolerate that. And that's way more than most of this age group is doing it for sure um you know i was thrilled to get people who are relatively active to if they were training with me two days a week to get them to do two additional days per week that was a big ask for a lot of people um yeah. so yeah i think uh three to four days a week is an ambitious goal for most people but i think also attainable um yeah can you speak to how sleep affects your bone health. Um, I'm sleep affects everything. I'm assuming okay. there's a big influence on it. Uh, I'm guessing it, it sounds largely like you, you subscribe to like the, the biopsychosocial model where there's a lot of things. It's not just purely, um, the food you're putting in your body and the exercise, but like stress and environmental factors are going to play a big role in your overall yeah. health and bone health is going to be a part of that. So is yep. sleep a factor? Absolutely. Yeah. So when, when we, if we de define our framework, we, we kind of have two different versions, but the, the framework that includes sleep is, you know, how do we reverse bone loss? And the answer to that is you have to start with the foundation and that foundation is nutrition, exercise, sleep, and then connection and can dig into that. But the sleep part is, is critical. And as I'm sure, you know, from working with people that if they're not sleeping, it doesn't matter how good anything else is, right? You just, nothing is going to work. They just feel terrible. So yeah, sleep's really important. And what's really interesting in this group is that I find that they, they really struggle with sleep. And I think that there's so much fear and anxiety with having osteoporosis and not having the, you know, the security to know that you can do an activity and not have a fracture. 
you know, they're just sort of lying in wait of this like impending doom, you know, that's out there. And it's a pretty crappy way to live. So a lot of these patients, they will, they have that, you know, kind of difficulty falling asleep, ruminating thoughts, wake up at 3 a.m. with elevated cortisol. Like we have to battle those things. Uh, so it definitely plays a role in, in bone health because we know that chronic inflammation, chronic cortisol, and then this course is going to impact how you eat. You know, all of those things are are directly tied to how well you sleep. Yep. Sleep is definitely one of those, um, has like a very cascading effect, positive and negative. When you're sleeping a lot better, everything else just seems easier. You're going to be more motivated to exercise, eat better. And the same is true on the opposite side as well. Um, right. Yeah. So you're talking about sort of the, the, the connection side of things. Uh, can, can you speak to that? Uh, I have a framework of like six pillars of things that people should be doing. And one of them is, uh, you know, healthy relationships. I'm assuming that's what you're, you were speaking to as far yeah, as a connection. So I've, I've struggled and I've renamed this pillar. I don't know how many times. Yeah. Um, so it started out as, as stress mitigation, you know, yeah. because stress is important. Right. And then I realized it's not really, it's not just stress, you know, really underneath stress is for, in, in my opinion, for a lot of people, it's spiritual health, right? Like, do you have something that you have faith in that you can believe in that, you know, there's a, a bigger, a greater, a whatever, right? doesn't matter what it is, religious or not, but some kind of spiritual connection. But then that's not really it either. And then I've kind of come to this idea of connection because it's connecting with source, with God, with people, with your community, with your children, with my dog, you know, like it's all of these things that can help to really keep us strong and keep us moving forward and having purpose. So I've, I've renamed it recently connection. So that's what I mean. <laughs> that seems uh, like a very good catch-all bucket to throw those into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I personally have uh, healthy relationships in one bucket and then stress mitigation in another. So it's two sides of the same coin for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just more pores. Yeah. How do you, how do you introduce people to that? If you feel like they, they don't have a great support system or it's all very inwardly focused and there's not that sort of something greater than themselves to work towards. Do you have any idea tricks to. Yeah. So, I mean, the hardest thing is just even bringing it up, you know? And so when I, the way that our program works, they meet with the, the coaching team first. And then I come in after they've, they've met with the coaching team and and sometimes this has been pieced out already. You know, sometimes people, they, they just come out that they're like, this is the, you know, this is the thing. But I always kind of go through the pillars and see what people connect with. And um, a lot of times these patients are coming in, they're just, they're a lot really dialed in. You know, I'm doing this exercise and my diet's like this. And I'm like, cool. Um, and then I ask them about, well, you know, tell me about your spiritual health. And I phrase it in different ways, depending on the person. Um, and a lot of times people are like, oh, dialed, right? Like I have a meditation thing and I pray and they do this and they're awesome. But a lot of times people will say, I don't do anything, you know, like they don't have an answer, you know, and then, you know, like, oh, okay, well, this is probably a weak point. And I have found, um, if you can dial everything else in. And if that piece is truly missing, they're going to falter, you know, they're just not going to be able to thrive. And so then the question, and I don't know the answer to this, but the question is then what do you do about that? Because that's really hard from with the tools that I have available, that's really hard to do something with. Yeah. It, it, it's similar to sleep in that if you're not addressing a way to mitigate stress and if you don't have those healthy relationships, it's a very challenging thing to duplicate elsewhere. Like it's hard to just ramp up other, these other pillars that we're talking about to just right. fill in the gap for that. Yeah. It's a, that's a tough nut to crack for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have ideas. So I'm, I'm exploring some things, but I don't have an answer yet. Yeah. Well, 
it's good. It's a, it's a very worthwhile problem to work on solving. Yeah. Uh, can we go back to sleep for a second? Do you have any sleep hygiene tips or tricks or tools that there's so much out there, but you've probably had to distill it down to something somewhat reasonable yeah, with, yeah. Uh, you know, just, you, you see people repetitively. So what do you, yeah. what do you do for people who aren't sleeping particularly well? Yeah. In, in general, I kind of kick this to my coaches because they have the accountability side, but when people, when that's their thing and, and I have time in, in our meeting to discuss it, then yeah, I, I start with, you know, what leads up to sleep and it's almost like your entire day, right? It's almost like we need to plan from the beginning of the day when we're going to go to sleep and how we're going to get there. Um, I really like the framework that Craig Ballantyne uses. I don't know if you've heard this 10, three, two, one rule. So make sure I can get this out. Right. Um, so the 10, three, two, one rule is, uh, 10 hours before bedtime, no caffeine, three hours before bedtime, no food, two hours before bedtime, no work, one hour before bedtime, no screens. Right. And so I like it because it's not so rigid that you can't follow it. You know, some people will say like, turn off your lights and wear red glasses and feel like your blah, blah, you know, it's like, wow, like I don't live in a cave. Um, but I like it because you can still live your life. Like you can have dinner at, you know, like, let's say you have dinner at six and then your bedtime is, you know, between nine and 10, and then you can you know, hang out with your kids and you can even potentially watch a little TV, although not a huge advocate of that, but you wind things down and then you have that hour of truly winding down no work, no screens, truly unplugged, connecting with your spouse if, if that's an opportunity that you have. Um, and then you're getting yourself into bed and really like preparing yourself to launch into sleep. You know, and then you're setting the stage of, you know, what does your sleep chamber look like? And, you know, do you have a TV in there? And do you have other lights in there? And like, it's such a big deal, like to have a cold, dark sleep chamber, you know, and it's, it's critical. And I see crazy stuff that people are like, I have this like merry-go-round in my bedroom. Like, what are you doing in there? Um, and so I think those are the, the biggest things out of the gate. And then we have to figure out like, okay, well, where are your struggles, you know? And, and is it the, the 2 a.m. wake up and this is a cortisol thing? And then you can really start diving in. Um, but that's the biggest thing out of the gate is just setting your bedtime, being absolutely consistent, both weekdays and weekends, um, and sticking to it and um, having the right sleep hygiene to get there. This is something I go back and forth on all the time. Also, first, I want to mention how how much I like that you refer to it as a sleep chamber and not a bedroom. It's just like such a good way to reframe it to get people to right. think of the importance around sleep, which they should. Right. Is there like a good comparison between like diabetes and prediabetes and osteoporosis and osteopenia? Because like a lot of these can be just terms and like if people aren't wildly involved in the healthcare space, you can be like, ah, eh, it's just a term. It's a term I've heard. Yeah. I mean, gosh, you could... There's a lot of discussion around like even the word osteoporosis and like, why is it defined the way it's defined and how did we come up with this T-score thing based off of DEXA? So I'll, let me just dig into that a little bit. The short answer to your question is yes, there's a thing and it's called osteopenia. Um, and if I had, I wish I had like a, a whiteboard behind me, I'd like draw this out. But basically what happens as we age predictably, although arguably doesn't have to happen this way, but this is what happens is that our bone mineral density, like we said, it's, is your peak bone mineral density is in your early adulthood, right? Early twenties to thirties. And it starts to decline in, in your forties reliably in everybody. Then when you see the, the chart that, um, is, uh, it's, it's, this is what, when you get a DEXA score or in a DEXA scan, this is the screening imaging for osteoporosis. You'll see this chart and the chart it has age on the bottom and then it has T score. And I'll define that in a minute on the, the on the vertical side. And then you can see that the average T-score will drop over time, right? And so um, 
the T-score is a statistical um, analysis of bone density compared to that of a, a early 20-year-old in your same um, uh, gender and uh, ethnicity. So, you know, for me, it would be a, a Caucasian guy, um, com- me now compared to where I was in my 20s. And there isn't a lot of difference because I'm in my mid-40s. But as you age, it starts to drop down. On either side of that average, there is a kind of a, a shaded bar. And within one standard deviation, so we can talk about statistics, but within one standard deviation is quote unquote normal. Between negative one and negative 2.5 standard deviations is osteopenia. And then less than negative 2.5 is osteoporosis. Now, those numbers were relatively arbitrarily chosen um, not that long ago. (laughs) And so we created this definition of osteoporosis based off of the statistical analysis of uh, uh, an imaging study that, that was adopted, um, try to remember, but I think it was like late nineties. So not that long ago. Um, and there's a lot of, I hear suspicion around, you know, this, like it was the drug companies and they had the drugs and they wanted to make a diagnosis that fit with the, you know, and like, I'm like, I don't know if that's true. Cause it does also coincide with fracture risk. So, um, so it's interesting. So yeah, there is a thing. And how important is that thing? Like I said, like, I technically have osteopenia. Am I worried about fracture risk? Not at all. Um, and and you have to understand too, like as you age, osteopenia is normal. Arguably, I'd love to see it not happen, but it's still normal. And I see people, you know, I see women in their 60s and 70s and they get diagnosed with osteopenia, which is not an ICD code. There is no diagnosis of osteopenia. Um, and they, and they, they're freaking out, right? And they're scared of fracture. And it's frustrating because that is totally unnecessary fear and anxiety because it's totally normal and they are probably not at risk of fracture. Um, and yet we kind of instill this fear of this thing called osteopenia, which is actually normal deviation from average bone mineral density. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate you explaining that. It's just kind of giving people an idea that this is something that is on a spectrum. So it's not just a binary, this or that it's, there's a long spectrum. And then, as you said, there's nuance to it as well. Even if you fall in somewhere in the spectrum where there's this word osteopenia, if you have the expertise or you have uh, a provider with the expertise, they can tell you whether or not it is or is not a concern. Hopefully. Yeah. And let me just say one more thing about that is that osteopenia can be a problem depending on how early you are with it and what your trajectory looks like. So if you were barely osteopenic, you know, two years ago, and now you're severely osteopenic, almost osteoporotic, like that is a big problem, right? So I wouldn't say like, don't worry about osteopenia, it, but it's a, it's a Delta thing. You know, what's the difference from one test to another, another reason to get tested early. Which is such a great point. Like that's where the nuance and the context comes in. Um, so is your average primary care provider going to be well-versed in this? Are they even testing for it? And you mentioned before what the test is for it. Can you explain a little bit what a DEXA is? So I think yeah. it's important for people to be like, to be their own best advocates, to understand like, what is the test I should maybe be asking for if it's not standard? Yeah. So the standard test is DEXA. It's available worldwide and easily accessed in pretty much any community. So it's around. So we have to use it because it's there. Um, the downside of DEXA is, is a few big ones. And one of them is that it's only measuring one aspect of bone strength. And what we want to know is how strong are your bones and what is your risk of fracture? Um, DEXA is essentially an x-ray. So all it's measuring is the body's ability or the skeleton's ability to absorb or not absorb x-rays. And that's all based on mineral density. That's why we call it bone mineral density. It's what it tells you. 
but it doesn't tell you about bone strength. And there are several examples where you could point out that improvement in bone mineral density does not necessarily improve fracture risk and vice versa. You can see improved fracture risk with some therapies that don't improve bone mineral density. So we know that there's a whole other side to this thing, uh, but DEXA is globally available. So we use it, right? It's there. Um, so uh, there are a couple other ways to measure it. We can we can answer those in a separate question, but um, that's that's what a DEXA is. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a good explanation. Um, on a very personal note, I've been getting DEXA scans for years. I hate the way the printout, do you use your own printouts or do you plug in the data that you care about into a certain chart? Or do you actually like- I- I pretty much just look at a few points. Okay. Yeah, you've probably been doing them also for body comp, I would assume, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, some of the body comp DEXAs don't even give a T-score. Right. And so it's, yeah, it's kind of like, it's challenging when people say, you know, I got this DEXA, can you take a look? And it's like, oh, well, I can tell you what your, you know, visceral adiposity is, but <laughs> but I can't, can't tell you what your T-score is. So they, you do have to find the right one. And that can be a challenge for us too, because again, we're telehealth nationwide. So I don't know all the providers. Yeah, just for years, I'm like, this is a useless printout, largely speaking. I just yeah. use an Excel sheet and kind of plug in the things that I care about. Right. Um, so yeah, if you could kind of explain the other the other ways to measure, the other metrics that you look at to sort of get yeah. a more well-rounded view of not just bone mineral density, as you've been talking yeah. about through DEXA. There are, so there are kind of, there's three things to talk about. So some people will talk about this thing called TBS or trabecular bone score, and this goes with a DEXA. So DEXA is the, the traditional thing. You can have a kind of a software add-on called TBS. It, in theory, will look at bone quality. I just personally, I'm not real impressed with what that data actually provides me. I don't really know how to interpret it, and it's not because I haven't read about it. It just doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense to me. It also has the the downside of, of um, uh, being manipulated by um, arthritis and uh, deformity, and so it just it doesn't give me a lot of good information. The one that I really like, if people have access to it, is a uh, ultrasound study called REMS. Um, and REMS is an ultrasound, like I said, and so there's no radiation. And it gives you both bone density and T-score, but it also gives you a fragility score. So it tells you what your bone architecture is like, and it's it's pretty solid. It's been studied compared to DEXA, and there is some difference, differentiation or difference between the two. I would argue that probably REMS is likely better, but once something has been labeled as the gold standard, you can't say that something is better or worse. You can only say that it's different. So we don't really know. The downside of REMS is that it's just not globally available. Um, there's just not a lot of them out there. And, and then the last thing that we do for understanding what's happening with bone metabolism is actually to look at biomarkers. So not even doing imaging, just saying what's happening with your osteoclasts, what's happening with your osteoblast. And there are bone, uh, bone turnover biomarkers that we can get in blood. And they're great. So I can tell you, you know, are your osteoclasts slowing down? Are your osteoblasts building up? You know, what does our ratio look like? What does our metabolism look like? And that's really what I'm looking at more so than imaging. I care what happens to your DEXA, but I more care what happens to your, your bone turnover biomarkers as we go. Interesting. So what are the tests for that? Uh, the biomarker tests. So the, the acronyms are CTX and that's C-telopeptide. And that's the, the osteoclast or bone breakdown. Uh, test. And then the other one is P1NP, which stands for pro-collagen type one, pro-something, some something, P1NP. There you go. Um, and it's it actually is listed. It's different no matter where you look at it. Uh, but anyway, P1NP is the, the bone building um, osteoblast biomarker. So they change relatively slowly. So you can get this nice trend over time. And we could really see big changes with uh, with therapy 
in a couple of months rather than saying like, oh, well, you have to wait two years to do a DEXA to see a difference, you know? And then wondering like, did the DEXA actually show me what I think it showed me? <laughs> so uh, the bone, term, bone biomarkers are way better uh, for short-term progression. Yeah, I think that's great. And also very important in that I, I think a lot of the interventions and like measurement protocols within the space are, they're just kind of slow. So I love like a more iterative process where you can be like, all right, well, these are the interventions I prescribed. I can see their adherence or not, and then see whether or not based on these blood tests, whether or not things are moving in the right direction or not. It's just a, it creates a faster feedback loop, which I think is much needed in healthcare. Yeah. And it just provides that like, you know, the feedback that what you're doing is working. Right. And I see people just get such fatigue because it takes so long to see improvements in DEXA. Yeah. I can imagine that's very frustrating for something that's not even the complete view anyway. (laughs) <laughs> right. So I, I kind of glossed over this, but I want to go back to it. Is are these things that your general primary care is going to be able to identify or know about, or are they going to refer out to specialists? So it's kind of a challenging answer. So most primary care doctors, internists, obviously they know about the disease. They have a plan, but that plan is generally going to be based off of pharmaceuticals. And this is where I see so much contention in the the patient population because they're their expectations were not met by their doctor. I see it doesn't matter if it's primary care, internist, endocrinology, whatever. Um, but you have to remember if I'm talking to the patients to say that the medical system is what it is, right? We have a medical system that is designed around diagnose and treat. And that treatment is going to be whatever we can do to achieve our goal in the least amount of time possible. And that's generally going to be pharmaceuticals. So I see patients frustrated to say, well, my doctor didn't even talk to me about nutrition and exercise and stress management and sleep and supplements and peptides and heart. I'm like, well, it's seven minutes. Like, how are they going to have that conversation? You know? And um, so I think the expectations are unfortunately just off. And our system is, is not good at treating things that require a comprehensive lifestyle solution, right? Like this is diabetes. This is dementia prevention. This is cardiovascular prevention, right? These things our system is not good at preventing. It's good at not dementia, but cardiovascular, you know, if you have a heart attack, man, you can get stented in under like 60 minutes. That's amazing, right? Like you're in a car accident and you have a trauma and you could be in the surgery, you know, you could be in the OR getting fixed up in less than an hour. Like that is phenomenal care. But is it phenomenal to throw a bisphosphonate drug at somebody who's perimenopausal with osteoporosis that just barely has it and doesn't have any other workup? I don't think so, you know? So yeah, they have a they have a tool, they have a uh, an approach, but it's not an approach that I would probably agree with. Okay, yeah, no, I think it's just great for people to. It's just helpful for people to be able to have this information so they can better navigate the healthcare system, even if it is it is just what it is, exactly like you said. But it right. is worth saying, like you you mentioned, we're awesome at trauma in this country. I I don't want to get in an accident in any other country but this one. We're very good at that. That's right. Preventing things is uh, that's the next step. So it's a totally, a totally different approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I'd love to kind of go into your company now. And now that we have a bit of a framework around what this is and also a pretty good understanding of like the healthcare industry as you just described it, uh, I'd love to see like where you fit in and sort of like how also your background as to how you ended up here. I think it was a great yeah. line to saying like you're now preventing, you're trying to teach people about the things that uh, to prevent people from getting the surgeries that you were constantly doing. So yeah, if you could just yeah. explain a bit more about your company and 
yeah. uh, your background, I think that'd be a great place to yeah, go. Yeah, well, let me just start with the, like how I got here, which is I, I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training. So I'm board certified in orthopedic surgery. I did that for seven years in practice before I, I finally jumped ship. Um, and I did, I treated fragility fractures. Um, and I, so that's hip fractures and that's, you know, wrist fractures and all, all the stuff that comes along that needs to be fixed. Um, in that practice, I was continuously frustrated by the lack of care that my patients could get in things like osteoporosis, but also the other things like, you know, diabetes was another one that just drove me bonkers. Um, and so you're right, I was doing the fragility fracture work, but in the diabetic patients, I was doing, you know, I was cutting off legs. You know, and I'm and I'm talking to these patients and saying, look, diabetes doesn't even need to be a disease, right? This is a nutrition problem and it can totally be put into remission. This doesn't have to happen. But they weren't there to hear me talk about that. So um after watching my wife, who is in the nutrition space, totally turn people around and I was seeing this opportunity to help people to optimize their health rather than just do surgery, um, I decided to start making some moves. So I did a second fellowship and got board certified in anti-aging and regenerative medicine. Uh, that fellowship was in functional medicine, did some more training in hormones, and then started part-time, kind of started the, the health optimization side part-time to sort of, sort of like get my feet wet um, and just loved it, you know? And then sort of the pandemic happened and we were like, well, you know, telehealth doesn't sound so bad right now. And so I, that, that was sort of my um, impetus to actually to make this leap. Very early on in that health optimization practice, I realized that what we were doing was perfect for bone health and that the the model that we had created with our health optimization pyramid that I kind of described earlier was the, the way that you slow down and potentially reverse bone loss and reverse osteoporosis. So uh, we started kind of reaching out to people that had it. We had some of those patients coming to see me because they knew me from fixing their fractures. So we kind of tested it out and it was awesome. I'm like, wow, this is like, this is amazing. So we started trying to message both messages in one platform and it was just sloppy and ugly. And so we ended up creating a second company. So now we have the optimal human health side and we have the optimal bone health side. The The YouTube channel is um, Optimal Bone Health with Dr. Doug. And that's where we just, we're putting so much energy and effort there to help educate because we kind of have two missions. One is to provide amazing patient care, but the other is just to educate globally. And YouTube is the platform to do that. And so um, started doing this on a bigger scale. Now over half of our patients are all patients with osteoporosis. And we, we use this uh, framework called the 4R framework that I haven't really mentioned yet. And the 4R framework is just to recognize why we're losing bone, reverse those causes of bone loss, retest to make sure you're headed in the right direction, and then to revive your life and live without the fear of fracture. That just putting that out there like that speaks so much to the people that are just searching, searching, searching for the answer because they are desperate a lot of times. There's so much fear around having this thing. Their doctor told them to take this drug and they don't want to. Now their doctor's going to break up with them. They're like bullying them into taking drugs. And it, it, it's just so unnecessary. Um, and the way that I look at osteoporosis is that if, if caught early enough, it really is reversible in most people. There are circumstances where bone loss is, is going to happen, you know, things like cancer treatment and, um, you know, chronic steroids and stuff like that. But for most women and men, this can be reversed um, and be, somebody can be put on the path to really have no issues with osteoporosis and fragility fracture. That's great. I think people should be hugely optimistic about that. And I want to kind of go back to your point of like how tragic it is that people live in fear of like 
not being able to live their lives in the way they want to. So this goes back to a question that I wanted to ask earlier, which is about exercise. Did you find a lot of people were avoiding exercise because they were worried their body couldn't oh, handle totally. it? The recommendations from their doctors were so um, counterintuitive and conflicting because they would say, you need to do resistance training, take calcium, vitamin D, and take this drug, right? And they'd be like, oh, oh, oh and don't lift anything more than three pounds. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so I'm going to do resistance training with a three pound dumbbell. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So they, they just don't know. And, and honestly, it is hard. And I put this on Nick, um, you know, our, our exercise guy. And I'm like, hey, look, man, you're, you're making the call here. Like, how much can they lift? It's really hard to know, you know, but the truth is you start low, you go slow and you build up and you'll get stronger. Your bones will get stronger. You know, will somebody probably fracture at some point doing an exercise that my team told them to do? Probably. Right. But we're pushing in the right direction and we're doing everything we can to put people on the, on the path that's going to get them there safely. Mm -hmm. And to think about the, the cost of not doing exercise. So that's usually how I, that's always how I frame it. Because yeah. you're not going to build bone without it. Right. And this is uh -huh. where I see people like, you know, people that are taking the drugs and they take these anabolic drugs like Forteo and Timlos that are, they're cool and they're tools that we do use occasionally. Um, but even then, like you've got to have the right diet. You've got to supplement with the right things if you're not getting it through diet and you still need to stress your bones. You know, like you're not, if you just take the drug, it's going to, it's going to do something, but it's not going to do nearly as much as if you feed your, feed your metabolism what it needs. Yeah. So you can't do it without resistance training and you can't do it without adequate protein intake, right? That's right. You need the building blocks to be able to, to build right. what, what you is You got to stress the bones. The bones are like every yep. other tissue in the body. They respond to stress. You know, the more you stress them, the more they'll grow. Yep. And that just happens uh, in the training world. So it's progressive overload where you just start at That's something right. manageable, stress it to a certain point, let the body adapt, stress it more, let the body adapt, yada, yada, yada. That's right. all of personal training in a, in a nutshell right there. Um, so what, what sort of model, like financial model, do you guys operate in? Are you sort of concierge? Are you, do you accept insurance? Do you accept? Uh, health savings accounts, flexible savings accounts, anything you can share about that just so people know sort of uh, the resources that are available through your company? Yeah. So this has been a challenge because the care that we offer, I mean, I've, I've kind of described it a, a little bit, but it's, I'll just say it's awesome, right? Like this is how, when I was in practice in the traditional medical model, this is how I wanted to treat people, right? Like you bring them in, you take care of them, you answer their questions in a timely manner, you treat them like people, you provide them with coaches, you help them with accountability, you order the stuff that's hard for them to get on their own for them and you have it delivered to their house, right? Like this is how I want to be taken care of. The problem with that is it's expensive, right? Like that's a tough team to run. Um, and so, yeah, so we have our full service program, which is what I just described. And, um, that's going to, the price is going to vary depending on, on where you're coming in and what you're coming in for. But what we've been really trying to do is to find that, like, what's the, what's the next level down that provides people with as much as we can in a, a very cost efficient manner. So what we've come up with, which we're launching in mid August, I don't know when this will come out, but, um, so it's, we're going to launch our, our beta program mid-August, um, and it's going to be a um, uh, group coaching. So group coaching is not going to have physician interaction, but it'll give us give people access to all of the, the video training that we have. So we have an entire library of educational videos, give them access to the, the physical training, either through Nick Truby or through, um, through Buff Bones. It'll give them access to our coaches. It'll give them access to, you know, how to get all the tests done and kind of guide them through that. So like, these are the tests. This is how you get them. This is how you interpret them, right? So kind of like a little bit of, of self-service, 
you'll have coaching calls, um, live calls from our my PA, um, and then access to all the training, the nutritional guides, and et cetera. So it is a, a program that I think most people would likely be able to do the majority of the work themselves. And then those that want that next level service will will be there for that. But our the demand is so big right now um, that we, you know, I can't get more people in at this point. Um, so we need to be able to bring people in and, and have a, a group coaching model where it's going to help the people that don't need as much help. Yeah, no, that's really smart. I think it's a really clever model. And by the time this comes out, that will be available. Um, awesome. So also before I forget, we're going to link to your website. We're also going to link to your YouTube channel in the show notes, just because uh, largely the purpose of this podcast is to provide people with just all these different avenues of education and me finding people who are reliable sources of that information. So that'll definitely yeah. be available. I'd like to know like what your thoughts are on sort of the future of healthcare, because obviously you're doing something where you moved out of the traditional model of healthcare and you described it perfectly. Like you're, you created a business where you can treat people the way you want to. I think that needs to happen more, but it is happening in this very, it's always cash pay. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think the the industry is going. If direct primary care is going to be a very viable model in the future, anything like that. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Peter Atia? Do you know I am. that author? Yeah. So um, I love the way that that Peter kind of puts it in his his book. If people haven't read it, Outlive is awesome. Um, oh, and, I'll link to that as I, well. Yeah. I, I, view, I view how we should take care of HealthSpan very similarly as he does. I love one of the things he talks about in there very extensively is this idea of a, a new medical system. And he calls it Medicine 3.0 with 2.0 being the system that we're in now and 1.0 being the system that preceded ours, you know, preceded pharmaceuticals and used like bloodletting and stuff. And so we're in, you know, our traditional model is 2.0 and he sees this 3.0 and he sees the way that I imagine that he treats patients and the way that I treat patients as how we will be able to treat everybody. I think that's amazing. I am not that optimistic though. (laughs) And the reason why is because, as I just said, to have the team in place to do the work that I want to be able to do for people requires two important things. One is resources because I got to pay my team, but the other is the patient has to care. While I'm very fortunate that my patients are all, you know, they're self-selected, right? So they're paying cash, they're coming to me, like they want to get better. But I very clearly remember when I was in practice, like I mentioned the diabetic patients who I would tell them, like, this is the secret that you can reverse diabetes and put it into remission. And they look at me like I have two heads because I'm talking about what to eat. We have to remember that, you know, us in this like health and, and wellness space, most of our, the people listening probably are interested in getting better and will likely do something to actually do that. But most of the population is not like that. And most of the population doesn't really want me to tell them how to work out or how to live their life or, you know, not to binge watch Netflix before they go to bed and to get their TV out of their room. You know, like, they don't want to hear that. So while I would love for Medicine 3.0 to exist, um, I'm not optimistic that that's the future. I think the future probably is more something along the lines of 2.0 just sort of continues to do what 2.0 does. Um, and we have this this service and I think it will likely eventually become globally available so that there will be no lack of resources for people. But the quality of care is going to continue to come down. And we're going to have to start drawing a line in the sand because the system will go bankrupt if we continue to offer the things that we're offering at the, the, the way that they are continuing to increase in cost. And so I think we're going to see a system that sort of devolves into a base level of care and then a, a, a new system that you can buy into. 
And that new system is going to probably have a different type of insurance, right? Be like a, an insurance company that does cover what I do, right? But the people that are buying into that insurance are paying, <laughs> I don't know if they could be higher premiums than what I pay for my current insurance. But you know what I mean? Like it's going to be a different tier of care and, and how that all happens. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. It's, it's arguably one of the most complicated problems in our country. Um, it, it, it's certainly the most financially burdensome, but sure. do you see, you, you're describing that sort of base level of care. Do you see that being like a single payer system? Yeah, I do. Okay. So you think that's the direction we're going? <laughs> I do. <laughs> For for better or worse, what are the what are the drawbacks? Yeah, I mean, so the drawbacks are. So I have I have friends in in Canada and Britain, and it's interesting. So now this YouTube channel, um, which is is really taken off with worldwide um, comments. So I'm getting comments and stories about people all over the world. So we have a a big Australian, Canadian. um, I have a Netherlands uh, contingent. I don't know why. Um, And so I get these stories about about healthcare across the world, and it's it's really interesting. And, and what I hear is the systems that have a, a single pair system, um, they don't have access. Like they can't, they don't, they can't get the tests. So they want to come, they want to, this is an amazing thing. And so if you have a worldwide audience, you know, people are going to start flying to Asheville, North Carolina to see me, get a blood draw, get, do the functional test, have a consultation, right? And then we can do a follow-up once they're home because they just don't have access to the stuff that we have access to here. So that that's the drawback. There's just very little further development in, in pushing the needle on it, um, and they just don't have access. And if they do, the waiting time is so long that it's it's very difficult to get care. Um, but if you have an accident, you don't pay anything, right? If you get sick, you don't have to worry about it, right? And you know, I mean, we pay almost three thousand dollars a month in insurance premiums for. I have a healthy family that doesn't need care, right? That's insane. And so, yeah, I you know, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, neither do I. Uh, I, I think single payer systems are uh, incorrectly hailed as some sort of panacea, but it only solves like the the problem of a good like negotiation. Uh, yeah, you get a lot more negotiating power uh, right. with the you know payers, but yeah, it the access problem is a real one. It's a very real one. I know in Canada, in uh, one of the places up there, they tried capping um, how much physicians could make, and then so it was like by by like September, right? In a calendar year, by sure. September, every doctor was on vacation. They're like, right. they, hit, they hit their cap. And that access- well, they would move to the US. They all right. got US licenses and would come right. practice in yep. the US. So I, I know several doctors, several surgeons, they would cap their procedure number. <laughs> and so they would hit their procedure number and it'd be like middle of the year. And they're like, well, I'm going to go to the US and do, you know, they have come do cash pay practices or do whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Come here, do research or, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's really tough. Yeah, it's hard to know the answer. Um, and you look at these models around the world, like you said, there's benefits and drawbacks. What's the Australian model, if you happen to know? I, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. I would not want to speak incorrectly. Yeah, no worries. One of the things I want to go back to is about sleep. This is the question that I was trying to figure out how to phrase. Do okay. you guys have like different tracks of thinking around, like there's different sleep problems, right? There's sleeping through the night. There's waking up with cortisol in the middle of the night. There is trouble falling asleep. So you have like different tracks be like, based on this particular problem, I'm going to take them down like sure. this set of protocols. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, we definitely would treat people differently that have those kind of three, there's kind of three clear things, right? It's like I, my sleep onset's terrible, right? It takes me two hours to fall asleep. And then there's the, the middle, there's the two to 3 a.m. cortisol. And then there's the, I'm waking up at 4 a.m. Um, and so, yeah, they're all, they all require different, 
modalities, you mean potentially even different, you know, supplements or potentially even pharmaceuticals, right? For people that truly have insomnia and, and you know, I'm not an insomnia specialist, but we we go down this pathway and I'm I'm as aggressive as I need to be because like we said earlier, it's one of the foundational things. If you can't figure this out, then you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely got to figure out a way to address it one way or the other. Um, do you think anything around AI is interesting or do you have any like interesting technologies you're seeing in the space where you're like, maybe this will help people at scale. This will help me be more efficient in my practice. Anything you're excited about from sort of a technology standpoint? Yeah. I'm excited about AI from an um, um, educational perspective. So AI content and we, I play with chat GPT and, you know, I use it. I don't, I don't have, none of my content is AI created, but I'll, I'll create stuff through AI and I'll kind of like proof it. And I'm sort of in this, like this in-between mode where I'm thinking, gosh, there is a way that I could leverage AI and, and educate people faster for cheaper. Right. And, and I'm just not, I'm a little concerned about, about what the content is sometime. Like I still want to read it all. So I'm, I'm definitely the limiter there, but I think there's certainly a role for that. There's a role in, you know, in blogs and, um, and audio content and even creating potentially like scripts for me in the future, like just cause it does such a great job of putting it together. Um, you know, I wrote a book, we should mention my book. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a book that's, uh, coming out and will actually, uh, not be out yet. Um, maybe I think our launch date is September 18th. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I would, plug some of these things into AI and look at what it would print out. And I'm like, man, that's not, it's not bad, right? Like it's not bad. Um, so I think there's definitely a space for this. I haven't figured out the right way to use it for us yet. Um, but it is a tool that I think a lot of people could use too. And this is almost something that when I get all these questions on YouTube, I almost wanted to tell people like, stick that into chat GPT, like, and you're going to get a, like a pretty good answer. You know, like you can train it to like, you can actually train it to talk like me if you want to. And so, um, yeah, I think there's definitely going to be a role for that in the future, but I don't think it's going to supersede the expertise of, of opinion and somebody who's been able to sort of figure their way out of the, the weeds of the research and kind of come up with their own plan. Because if you ask AI how to treat osteoporosis, for example, it'll tell you to take drugs, <laughs> you know? Um, treat, ask AI, you know, what the right diet is and it'll give you an answer that I don't agree with, put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely a promising area, but I think it's just going to be, at least in the near term, I think it's going to be people like you who are learning how to leverage it to increase their output in education. Cause like you said, do you have very little faith in medicine 3.0 happening? Um, yeah. I don't necessarily disagree. I think it's going to be driven by the needs of the public. And like you said, most of the people who are listening to something like this, uh, they're already sort of on the healthier end of the spectrum, but maybe the YouTube algorithm will accidentally push this to somebody who meant to be watching something else and will will get them hooked. But that's just uh, the hope that you have to have with these things. So getting towards the end of this, uh, I do want to wrap up. Is there something that you, like if you were ruler for a day and you could just make anything happen in this country, like what would you want to implement to make the the country healthier in a very collective manner? Yeah, I think the 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 biggest underserved thing in the in our country and probably worldwide, but our country for sure is just getting outside and doing some kind of activity. You know, like I think if we all if we all got out in the morning and got some kind of, you know, UV exposure, 
in the morning and did some kind of activity that we found enjoyable, um, I think that the whole world would be a much, much better place. Mm -hmm. I've kind of joked for a few years with my co-founder where I was like, if we can get the collective people on our platform to, on average, walk 8,500 steps a day, I'm like, I think we're going to win health. Um, Yeah. But totally. It, it's like, it's, it's very simple things like that. So getting sunlight, walking. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a great it's message. It's so under-leveraged by so many people. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's free. It's very accessible. Um, right. We talk about social determinants of health, like walking. I understand there are un, uh, unsafe neighborhoods, but it's a different conversation. Um, right. The last thing I want to ask you is like, if you couldn't have been a physician, surgeon, entrepreneur, what else could you see yourself doing in this world? I know I just crossed off a lot of things. Yeah, no, 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 that's good. So actually, when I was making this transition out of orthopedics, I had I had days where I <laughs> I didn't tell, I didn't know if this was going to work out. And so I was asking myself that question, I'm like, oh, what would I do? Like, if I didn't have to work, what would I do? You know, if I didn't have to make money, what would I do? Uh-huh. And honestly, I, I think the answer would probably be farming. That's really like, interesting. I have, I have nine acres. I have chickens out there. Like, I was like, I'm gonna get some goats. I'm gonna get some cows. I'm just gonna start raising food. I'm really jealous. I grew up in New Jersey, so there was always uh, farm fresh eggs available. Um, now yeah. live out in Scottsdale. It's so good, yeah. Yeah, no, I bet it's so awesome good. having your your own eggs right in your farm there. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, farming. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I still right. might do that someday. Yeah, no, it, it'd probably be incredibly gratifying and just force yourself into that sort of daily activity and a, a very strict routine. I don't think people because I, I kind of grew up working on farms, so it's just like the the animals just force a routine on you. And yeah, like a very pleasant way. Yeah, no, it's great. I think it's sort of a lost art in this country. Um, so I guess the last thing I'll ask also, uh, we're going to, this will be out after your book is released too. So we'll link to that as okay. well. If you can provide great. me that link. The the book is out. Well, uh, I'll give you the link. Yeah, it's not, we don't have a link right now, but just in case, in case we don't, it's called the osteoporosis breakthrough, the natural way to reverse bone loss and build stronger bone. Wonderful. There you go. Um, the last thing I want to say before I kind of get your closing thoughts is that I think it's easy for people to get overwhelmed with talking about all these lifestyle factors, having to manage nutrition and daily activity and exercise and sleep and relationships and connection. But the good news is this was all in conversation related to um, bone health. And the good news is like, if you do those things, you're checking a lot of boxes for pretty much everything else. Metabolic disease (laughs) states, diabetes, heart disease. So it, it may seem overwhelming that I'm kind of always having these conversations around specific disease states, but it's the lifestyle factors are, you know, the, uh, if the overlap were a Venn diagram, it would be a circle, right? It's so much, (laughs) it's so much of the same things. So I'd love to just get your closing thoughts. Uh, anything else you just want to share before I let you go? Yeah. I mean, I think in this space, the, the most important thing is to be an advocate for your health, but don't stick your head in the sand. And what I mean by that is so many patients, as I mentioned earlier, are they get scared by the diagnosis of osteoporosis and they go to their doctor and their doctor says, Hey, you should take this drug. And then they, the, the initial fear is predominantly global about this, these drugs uh, for good reason for some of them. Um, but here's where I think people really get stuck is that they don't, they don't want to do it or they do it and they don't want to do it. And then they stop doing it. Um, but then they like, don't, keep going, you know, or they don't take the drugs and then they look up, they're like, oh, well, I'll take this, you know, this one supplement, right? But then I'm not going to change anything else. So you have to be an advocate for yourself. And if you don't want to take the drugs, explain that to your your healthcare provider. And if they then give you this like guilt trip, 
then you have to find somebody that can help you create a comprehensive plan. It doesn't have to be me, but there are other people out there that can help you through all the lifestyle stuff, the, the custom supplements, you know, talk about hormone optimization and the risks and benefits. And if you're a candidate for that, consider peptide therapy, which is awesome for, you know, muscle mass and will in, indirectly impact your bone. There are so many tools out there. Just don't stop keeping an advocate for yourself, retest if it's blood test, if it's DEXA, if it's whatever, but have a game plan and just like knock it down. Just keep going. That's great. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it, it's kind of, that's kind of one of the common messages I'm getting from a lot of people that's been on the show. Like a lot of the questions end up sort of ragging on the healthcare industry. And it's like, this isn't great. This is inefficient, but we still live in a place with a ton of resources. So right. we are in a very resource rich country. There are plenty of options available and people do need to be their own best advocates and just trying to find the the right combinations of providers and practitioners and people surrounding them to to get them to optimal health. So this has been a really fun conversation for me. Um, Dr. Doug, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. And again, we're going to link to um, a lot of the resources we mentioned in the show. And I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. This was great. <music>